Pastor Mike Favares with Focal Point Ministries. I trust that the following recorded sermon will be a benefit and a challenge to your Christian walk. For more information about Focal Point Ministries, log on to our website at focalpointministries.org, focalpointministries.org, or call us toll-free at 888-320-5885. All right. Hard to believe we are in week number six, and we are shifting gears from Jehovah Witnesses to Hindus. There's hardly a more severe transition than that. Let's talk about Hinduism tonight. And as I said last time, perhaps what's most helpful for us in terms of world comparison and percentages and populations is to compare Hindus to where we've been in our study so far. So let's think this through in terms of numbers. Muslims, we said, just by way of review, 1.6 billion Jews, 15 million, though in the headlines every day. Roman Catholics, 1.2 billion. That is of course, does not count Orthodox, Eastern Orthodox. It doesn't count. Anglican doesn't count. Protestants, of course. Uh, Mormonism, 15 million in the world. Jehovah Witnesses, we said eight that were publishers, as they call them, or active participants in spreading the message or the name of Jehovah, quote-unquote, and 20 million that may participate in the most uh, important annual events. That's why that number has to be divided. Hindus that we're going to look at tonight, 1.1 billion that's the, the third largest world religion, and, and it is so important in terms of understanding the world a, uh, around us, uh, critically important. So in, in a world stage, that should give us pause to see what we're dealing with. Now, as we think about America and the numbers in America, of course, it's going to be a little different than it is in the world in terms of proportions, and it all shifts around. And of course, we have had a basket, a, a, an enclave of of Christianity and Roman Catholicism in our country. So these numbers are weighted, obviously, in that direction. Muslims in our country, we said 3.3 million. Jews, 5 million. Roman Catholics, 66 million. Mormons, 6.5 million. Jehovah Witnesses, again, we have to divide this, 1.2 that are participating in, in, in representing Jehovah actively, and then 2.5 that are participating in some of the most important uh, events with the Jehovah Witnesses, which is the number that most people would quote, if they go to services, and that's what we looked at last time. Hindus, 1.5 million. Now, that's a big number for our country, if you just think about sheer numbers of people, and yet it's such a small proportion. But don't let that deceive you, because it is growing in our country, and certainly as our country becomes more integrated with other cultures and other ethnic backgrounds, we're going to see a continued rise in Hinduism in our country. And you can go down Laguna Canyon and, and see the Hindu temple here. It's not very elaborate on the outside, but uh, here's a picture of what goes on on the inside, just down the street toward the beach. And if you were to go on your maps and say, where can I find a Hindu temple or a Hindu uh, site where I can worship? You'll find plenty. You got Norwalk, you got Tribuco Canyon, uh, Montclair, Laguna Beach that we just took a look at, got Downey, Riverside, Los Angeles, Northridge. And these are places, most of them nondescript. When you pass by them, they may look like any other building, kind of like Compass Bible Church, you know, just a building, nothing fancy. Uh, we're used to seeing in other countries buildings like this. And you may say, well, where is this? Somewhere in, you know, northern India, is this New Delhi? Well, maybe if you uh, ride this freeway that I don't drive very often, you know this is Chino Hills, uh, actually. This is right up the road, and one of the newest temples. They finished it not too long ago. And if you 
take, just do a tour on Google Images or go to Flickr or something. It is quite an elaborate structure. I thought I'd give you a couple pictures of the latest Hindu temple here uh, locally. And the architecture is, is uh, unbelievable in terms, in terms of the detail, uh, the gods that are etched into the uh, walls and staircases of the exterior. Uh, not as many pictures available on the interior, although there are some, you can find them, but certainly the worship of the Hindu gods taking place there. And again, I said most buildings are nondescript, but here's another one. Looks like we're maybe in some uh, country overseas, some uh, city in, in India. This is Calabasas, believe it or not. You have a temple not as elaborate as Chino Hills. Uh, here's one here that looks more like you might find in America. That's Culver City. And if you wanted to see what's going on there in Laguna Beach, you could go to their website and you can see what's happening at the uh, Hindu temple, the Hare Krishna temple, uh, with all kinds of upcoming events. Actually, uh, the 15th this weekend, we've got uh, some things going on there. If you just read that, and this month, Laguna Beach devotees pledged to chant and call out Krishna, God, 100 million times collectively to connect with Him and engage in loving devotional service. So, and then it'll be a festival of lights. We'll talk a little bit about that coming up here at the end of the month. So this is all going on while we're worshiping and, and studying our, our Bibles and putting on our Navigating Motherhood and our Fall Fest. That's just going on right down the road down in the beach. Now, when you think about Hinduism in popular culture, there may be more of an effect in popular American culture than you might think. But if I were to say uh, who has probably done the most to popularize Hinduism, uh, certainly in my lifetime, you'd have to point to this guy, would you not? If you don't know, George Harrison of the Beatles was a, a tremendous devotee, to use their words. Now, here's a quote from him. Uh, he said, through Hinduism, I feel uh, a better person. I get happier and happier. I now feel I am unlimited and I am uh, more in control. And then the article that I clipped this from goes on to say Harrison was perhaps one of the most spiritual, popular musicians of our time. His spiritual quest began in his uh, mid-20s when he realized for the first time everything else can wait but the search for truth and all the rest, and it goes on. And, the, and the, probably the song that um, if you didn't catch it when you were in the set, maybe you were on smoking pot or something, I don't know, and you missed what was happening in the 70s, but this song probably did more to surreptitiously and insidiously, I might say, bring in the uh, actual goals of what George Harrison was trying to do, not just to introduce uh, the theology of Hinduism, but actually get people participating without even knowing it. Now, do you remember the, the words to this song? Now, there's a lot of words here that repeat, and they're really small on the screen, but, you know, my sweet Lord, my Lord, my Lord, really want to see you, really want to be with you, really want to see you, take so long, my Lord, my sweet Lord, my Lord, my Lord, I really want to know you, really want to go with you, uh, want to show you, Lord, uh, that would take so long, my Lord, hallelujah. Oh, maybe this should be on the Christian channel, perhaps. Do you know what hallelujah means, by the way? Hallelujah. Hallel in Hebrew. We just transliterate this word in the Old and New Testament. It comes from Hebrew. Hallel uh, is the word to praise. Then there's a particle there, a, a second person imperative, plural imperative, y'all, uh, and then yah. Hallel, hallel, lu, y'all, Yah, Yahweh. That's the abbreviated form of Yahweh. So that word, we're used to singing in our songs, uh, and, and, and the Jews are used to singing that in their songs because we're talking about worshiping the one true God, Yahweh. Um, so it's interesting that that gets thrown in here, and we'll learn a lot about Hinduism being a syncretistic 
religion. It loves to uh, blend things together from other religions, and certainly George Harrison in that vein was pulling together a word that Americans he knew would be used to and Brits would be used to, uh, and so that starts to punctuate in the background as you remember the song. I was going to play it for you, but felt that would almost be blasphemous to play it here. It's bad enough for me to read it, uh, but my sweet Lord, hallelujah, mm, Lord, hallelujah, sweet Lord, hallelujah, really want to know you, repeat, see you, know you, long, takes so long, hallelujah, 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 ah, hallelujah, it goes on and on and on, and so, so far, I'm thinking, uh, wow, this sounds like a worship song, uh, but it's not, because the second half, uh, then the back voices, the antiphonal voices start to sing uh, who the Lord is, and it's not Yahweh, uh, it's my Lord, my, uh, my Lord, Hare Krishna, my, my, my Lord, Hare Krishna, mm, sweet Lord, Krishna, Krishna, mm, Hare uh, Hari Hari, Hari Rama, another god of the Hindus. Uh, Hari Rama, ah, hallelujah. Hallelujah, Hare Krishna, Hare Krishna, Krishna Krishna. This is the chant, by the way, of, of the, the meditative state. Uh, Guru Brahma, the name of, of the ultimate god. Guru Vishnu, Devu, uh, Mashurara, Guru uh, Shakara, uh, Parabrahma. Ta, it gets hard to say here. Uh, Tasamaya Shri, Guruva Nama, Hari Rama, Hari Krishna, Krishna Krishna, Hari Hari. Now, you probably sang along with that in the 70s, maybe when you were smoking pot, or maybe just you were singing, going down the road, and you didn't know that he was actually getting you to do what he was doing as a devotee of Hinduism. Now, that's not news to anybody, is it? Or is that surprising you young people, uh, maybe, who weren't into that, although everybody seems to be a Beatles fan? Here is a full-blown Hindu song, and I'm glad it didn't do too well. Oh, I guess it did. In Australia, number one. Belgium, number one. Canadian charts, number one. Uh, the Netherlands, Dutch, Dutch charts, number one. French, German, Irish, number one. Uh, Japan, well, they weren't really catching on. It was the number four song. Uh, New Zealand, uh, Norwegian, South Africa, uh, number three, uh, Spanish charts, Swedish charts, Swiss singles charts, UK singles, uh, US Billboard Hot 100. This was the number one song all over the world. Uh, they were singing this song. And Harrison was getting uh, into popular culture, uh, people chanting mantra, the meditative mantra. Here they are, the four Beatles uh, with their groupies and their uh, yogi in the background which is not a bear, uh, yogi, the, the guru, the, the uh, swami. So, um, you know, on Thursday nights, the Beatles weren't studying the Bible. <laughs> um, maybe when your dad was not real keen on you listening to the Beatles, uh, maybe uh, there, there was a, probably some wisdom uh, perhaps in that. Oh, the Beatles, best band in the world, whatever. I'm just telling you, they were pushing a theology in a culture, and it introduced many, many people uh, to it. As a matter of fact, one of the books in my library that I've had for many years is a book on how to chant the Krishna uh, mantra. And, of course, they used Lennon and Harrison to, to do that. As a matter of fact, this is a lot of it is an interview with them about it. And I thought I would just I scanned real quick the first page of this. These are words from George Harrison. Everybody is looking for Krishna. Some don't realize that they are, but they are. Krishna is God, the source of all that exists, the cause that all of all that is, was, or ever will be. As God, as God is unlimited, he has many names. Allah, Buddha, Jehovah, Rama. 
Uh, all are Krishna, all are one. By serving God through each thought, word, and deed, and by chanting His holy names, the devotee quickly uh, develops God consciousness by chanting the, the mantra. And the mantra is Hare Krishna, Hare Krishna, Krishna Krishna, Hare Krishna, Hare Rama, Hare Rama, Rama Rama, Hare Rama. One inevitably arrives at Krishna consciousness. Uh, the proof is uh, of the pudding is in the eating. And this is actually scanned off my page. And at first I thought I had a signed copy from George Harrison. I could sell it on eBay and buy some good books. But it's just printed there. I, but anyway, he you know, writes here, all you need is love. And you remember that song. Uh, and then he makes clear, Krishna. And then he adds, not the syncretistic hallelujah, but Hari Ball. Hari Ball is uh, the Sanskrit way, which is the language of Hinduism, to praise the god of, 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 of Hinduism. Um, Baal, Hari, by the way, in Sanskrit is Lord. And in his worship through the Bhagavad Gita, it is Krishna. And Krishna, it's like saying when we we would say the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord is Hari. Baal in Sanskrit is to shout. It's just like hallelujah. Hari Baal is the equivalent. This is what was going on. And this is what it was all about. And and, and certainly these people were serious. Uh, Certainly uh, Lennon and, and Harrison about their Hinduism. Is that, is that revelatory to anybody? A few people? Man, it shouldn't be. Uh, they were overt about it. Well, I'm glad our president wasn't listening to it back in the day. Oh, perhaps he was. You're used to seeing Obama with his Islamic garb and uh, hosting his um, Ramadan dinners. But uh, certainly he'll have the swamis, the gurus, priestly class, the Brahmin come to the White House. And here he is being draped with the uh, Brahmin cape red vestment. So anyway, popular culture. How has it affected popular culture? Well, of course, my sweet Lord, we even quoted the lyrics uh, here, shamelessly. I think of other songs, Material World. Just think of all the other songs that the Beatles put out after, you know, that they went their separate, Give Peace a Chance, John Lennon, all about uh, Krishna uh, and, and Hinduism. It Don't Come Easy, Ringo Starr, Miles Away, Fleetwood Mac, reference to, to Hinduism there. Pastime uh, Paradise, Stevie Wonder, uh, that shouldn't come as a surprise either. Bow Down, uh, Mister by Boy George. Now we're getting into the 80s, are we not? Hare Krishna, that was the name of the song. Placebo put out. Uh, Weezer, this is a new song, a new group, newer group. Good thing uh, about Hinduism. Celebrities. A lot of celebrities are serious about their Hinduism. Here's Julia Roberts with her guru. And you're ashamed to take a picture with your pastor. Look, I mean, she's not, she's not afraid. Here he is. And there they are. And she's, she's serious and vocal about her Hinduism. John Coltrane, one of the greatest tenor sax players of all time and, and a great musician committed to Hinduism. His, so is his son. And so is his, his daughter-in-law or his, uh, his son's also a tenor sax player, very accomplished musician. MIA, the singer, the younger generation people who I know nothing about. Russell Brand, the actor who was married to that apostate pastor's daughter. Wasn't she, uh, what, Katy Perry, right? Is that her name? Oh, who I think dabbled in this. Although in an interview I read, she said she's not a Christian. She's not a Hindu. She's nothing. You know, she's above all that. I think she thinks she's God, actually. I'm not sure. But she certainly dabbled in it when she was dating and married to Russell Brand. Jerry Garcia, you know, uh, you know who he is, the musician. Some of you got into drugs because of Jerry Garcia. I did buy a few of his ties after he uh, started making ties. KRS-One, 
I don't know anything about him other than he's a popular rapper, apparently. Cal Penn, see him on movies and TV. You might know that name. Certainly would know his face if you Googled him. Uh, Ricky Williams, you sports fans of the NFL, played at Miami and a bunch of other teams, apparently. J.D. Uh, Salinger, uh, the author of Catch, Catcher in the Rye, another uh, devotee of, of Hinduism. And one that you may not have, have heard unless you've read his, his autobiography or read some of his biographies, uh, Steve Jobs. Here's an article that was posted about his funeral. Happened in the fall of 2011, Apple co-founder and legendary business leader Steve Jobs passed away on October the 5th of that year at the memorial service of Jobs. Hundreds of influential leaders from all walks of life were then introduced to Hindu spiritual guru, which was his guru, and in the seminal book, uh, Autobiography of a Yogi. It was that then at, at Job's funeral, it was one of his last wishes that everyone who would come to his memorial services would leave with a copy of the book. And then they talks about how all the influence that that had because well, you might know a little bit about Steve Jobs running off to India and giving up on all kinds of things that actually what killed him, right? He refused to get the medical treatment he could have gotten because of all of his wacky views and ended up dying as a result. But certainly even after he died, trying to see if he could introduce people to uh, Hinduism and, and Eastern philosophy. Mark Zuckerberg, uh, I read this article about, this is last year, September 27th, uh, says after visiting an Indian temple with the urging of Steve Jobs, it helped him stick to Facebook's mission. And he talks about how it's been so great for his business. And certainly people read that. They look at an influential smart guy, quote unquote, uh, like Mark Zuckerberg, and, and it has an impact on our culture. In popular culture, you see uh, young starlets like Selena Gomez wearing the bindi on her on her forehead, which is the uh, sign of, of, of the point of creation. There's lots of things, actually, the singularity of, this is not talking about the Big Bang Theory, but the singularity of, of creation and the unity of all things, the goal of Hinduism will look at that and, and decoratively worn on the forehead of, of Hindus. And she has been caught many times wearing that in private, on stage, in performances, even got a lot of Hindus mad at her, saying it's not something you should just be wearing. And of course, she knows what she's doing and, and making a statement. Miscellaneous elements in culture. I just want to throw out, though you may say, well, Hinduism seems so weird, so far away, overseas, somewhere. Think about the popularity of the concept of, of reincarnation. I mean, that's the staple, one of the central staples of Hinduism. I mean, that is the essence of what we're dealing with when we think about uh, who we are. And certainly we've had all kinds of people in our culture. Uh, what's her name? Shirley MacLaine and all these people really making popular uh, in the last few decades belief in reincarnation that's traced right back to Hinduism. Of course, central to all of that is the concept of karma. I mean, you can't get through a week without someone saying, you know, karma this and karma's a that and look at that. That guy got what he got coming to the karma. That, that whole concept of, of karma is, is central, really to the core of, of the central belief and practice of Hinduism. And how about the practice of yoga, right? I mean, you can't even go to a big uh, gym anywhere without having uh, on the schedule yoga. I don't know if it's starting to, to pass or not in importance. Uh, I don't go to any of those classes, any of the classes. I don't care what the name is, but certainly that. Thank you. That was uh, part of it. And we'll talk maybe a little bit about vegetarianism. And I know for a lot of, a lot of people engage in, in, in vegetarianism for a lot of different reasons. But if you track a lot of the things that you read in popular culture and, and you look at what's being taught in Hinduism, you'll see these lines line up perfectly in many people's 
uh, decisions to be vegetarian or vegan. The whole ecology environmental movement. When you start reading, I remember reading uh, Al Gore, who's back in the news these days, reading his seminal work on the environment. And I read that years ago when it came out. And I thought about how his belief system about the world matches so perfectly uh, with, with Hindu concepts of creation. And uh, I just think so much of it, whether it's inadvertent or whether it's conscious or not, so many of these things are, are traced back to the same reasons. You talk about Mother Earth and all these things, and maybe we'll touch on that if we have time. The concept of creation, uh, cremation. Cremation was really, for the most part, unknown in Western cultures. And yet it had been going on in Hinduism for years. Cremation's on the rise. And again, you know, people are cremating their relatives all the time, and they're not th- saying, well, I'm doing something Hindu here. But this certainly was uh, a Hindu concept because for them, life was over at death for that person. Uh, it was the final sacrifice, they called it. Matter of fact, that's the Sanskrit word for it, final sacrifice. And, and to burn that body, uh, now we're going to start over. And, and we're going to have a, a, it's not like you're going to put a body in the ground and we're going to have a, a body come back, which we saw all the way back to, to the book of Genesis. Clearly, pictures of preserving the body, laying it aside, future resurrection, none of that in Hinduism. And so crema- cremation was the preferred way to uh, deal with the end of life. And certainly that today uh, is, is all the rage, maybe for different reasons, but certainly has infected popular culture. Transcendental meditation and all kinds of branches of the New Age movement, which doesn't seem to be as cutting edge as it used to be. Southern California is, uh, you know, was, was at the front of that in America, but people may have moved on, but still. <laughs> Get your attention with Kama Sutra just to see if you're still awake. If you don't know what that is, don't look it up. But, I mean, you hear that, I, you know, I, you hear that bannered about in, in secular media all the time, which is, comes right back to, more Sanskrit words, back to uh, Hinduistic, it's part of the Hinduistic Hindu scriptures. And uh, we'll look at that in a minute. Or just for fun, the Department of Heuristic and, uh, Heuristics and Research on Material Applications. Does that mean anything to you? If, you're, uh, if you were a lost fan, uh, the Dharma Initiative, remember that? No? Nobody? It's interesting. I got into that for a while. Dharma is the goal of Hinduism. It's one of the key concepts, one of the top five words of Hinduism. And it's interesting there. It means righteousness or duty, uh, things that we're responsible to do. And and that became the whole fictional, uh, that's just for fun, but uh, the whole fictional center of what was going on there in that very bizarre TV series, Lost. But anyway, that's the acronym, right? Uh, Dharma. Let's try and define Hinduism, which for most religions would just be a matter of time and effort and coming together, you know, putting together some uh, synthesis uh, of, of what it contains, and, and we just want to get our arms around it and define it. Well, that's much, much more difficult uh, with Hinduism. Uh, speaking of Sanskrit, there is the, the Sanskrit symbol. Sorry, it's in red. I know that doesn't come through very well. I should have changed the color on that. But you can see that symbol there. Some would say, and it's such an ancient language that maybe represents the three primary manifestations of, of God, uh, Brahman, and we'll, we'll look a little bit more at that in the future. But I see it all the time. And you know where I usually see it? People's tattoos. I see, I see one guy almost every day. He's got a gigantic one on, on his shoulder. When you see that little squiggly line, you know, on, on someone's arm, that is the representation of, of Hinduism. That's, that's, the, that's the symbol of, of Hinduism in Sanskrit. You think, whoa, now we're in Germany, yeah, Nazi Germany. No, the swastika is uh, a symbol, an ancient symbol of, of uh, Hinduism. And it has been around uh, for a long time describing what we're 
driving toward in meditative state and how we're trying to you know, absorb ourselves in, in the, the unity of all things, and we'll talk about that later. But you, know, you don't see it much here in uh, Western culture because of you know, the overtones that it has in, in most people's mind, but it was a very positive symbol for a lot of years. My wife and my daughter and I were taking a tour in Chicago not too long ago. Well, I guess it was last year now. And uh, one of the buildings right there, if you look for it, right on the Chicago River at Michigan Avenue and Chicago River, uh, there's a building and it's decorated with swastikas. Well, the building was built before World War II and it was a positive symbol, but it really was a symbol that was most popularized through um, Hinduism. But if you go over there in India, you still see it sometimes decorating people's bodies for some of the festivals and ceremonies. Uh, but here's an example of a Hindu boy with his uh, swastika on his swastika on his head. So let's try and define it. Those are symbols you'll see that relate to it. But let's start by just trying to make this statement. I think if I am going to try to put a sentence together that is going to define Hinduism, this is the one I'd start with. It is a diverse group of religious traditions. Keyword, diverse. And that's the problem uh, in trying to get our arms around Hinduism. It's very hard to define. Um, it's hard to define because there are so many things about it that are so diverse they become contradictory, and that's key. We can't write a systematic theology on Hinduism. You're going to have to choose a certain epic or period or developmental stage of Hinduism to try and write anything that has a systematized, uh, logical, cogent expression of what, of what is meant. So in the most broad definition, which I think most Hindus would agree with, it is a diverse group of religious traditions. Now, what they share in common, I guess, would be the origins in India and Sanskrit, the language. Uh, you can say, well, there is commonality there, and it gave birth uh, to a bunch of religious beliefs and, and assertions and traditions from that geographic area. Beyond that, I can't say much in terms of its commonality. And we're going to look at some of the major things that um, I, I guess arch across most uh, diverse expressions of Hinduism, but certainly uh, India is what ties this together. Now, there's claims that this belief system uh, is going to go back to 3000 BC. Now, this is really prehistoric Hindu times. Uh, and, but the claims are, and you've got a lot of sociologists and anthropologists trying to make claims about this, but that, I mean, in most encyclopedias or, or, or textbooks, you're going to find this date thrown about. Now, we have nothing that claims to be written at that period, as we'll look at in a minute, but certainly they'll say through oral tradition, there is something that gave birth to what looks like modern Hinduism uh, going back that far. The oldest writings, though, are going to be uh, claimed by most, and it's even diverse in trying to describe the history of this. People have different opinions about it. Uh, but the oldest writings to about 1,000 B.C. Now, if you want to get that in a biblical time frame, which you should in your mind, uh, you've got Abraham at about 2,000. This is rough and dirty, 2,000 B.C., and you've got David at about 1,000 B.C., and if you're just trying to get a framework to think about the Bible, that's always a good way to think about it. You've got Abraham, 2,000, David, 1,000 roughly, and you know, Christ, of course, at the change of the, uh, of the calendar. So you're talking about the time of, of Solomon, David, Samuel, when they'll start to claim this is when some of our writings came together, and we're going to look at that. Uh, it's drawn from a very large library of writings. I mean, we can take our Bible and say, here's our book 
that started with the writings of Moses in about 1440 B.C. and ends with John on the island of Patmos at about 95, 96, somewhere in the 90s A.D. So you've got this set of books, 66 of them, and if you're a Vatican, I mean, a Council of Trent Catholic, you're going to throw in, of course, those intertestamental books. But you've got, you know, 66 to, to what, 78 different books that you're going to say, well, these are the things that Protestants and Catholics look to as the corpus of their authoritative writings. Now, of course, Catholics add the church, and that's what messed that whole discussion up about trying to figure out where we go for a source of authority. But that's a book you can put into two or three inches thick. The Hindus, by comparison, would look more like my library in my office. You'd walk in and see thousands of books that represent the authoritative words of, 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 of Hindus, authoritative voice for Hindus. And we're going to look at that and try and understand that. But when you look at something like that, that they claim is going to go all the way back to the time of Samuel and David and move well into the, the age of Christ, you're, you're going to have a evolving theology. Unlike the Bible, which, again, if you're not exposed to world religions, when you hear Christians talk about one of the evidences of God's inspiration or that He breathed out these words is that there's such a unity to the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. And we can write systematic theologies from Genesis to Revelation about any topic that the Bible brings up. You, you don't, you're not impressed with that until you study other religions like Hinduism and you say, wow, there's just no way to reconcile what's written here in 500 B.C. with what was written here in 1000 B.C. They are completely antithetical statements. And, and, and Hindus will admit that. And they'll say, well, yeah, well, this is one version and other people later said that and we know you can't reconcile those lines logically, but whatever, because it's a lot like a, you know, a line at the soup plantation, right? You, you can pick what you want, and, and I'm not disparaging that in that regard. That's their epistemology. That's their view of, of truth. You, you, you get to pick a, a version of Hinduism that you want to, to live under. But admittedly, it's an evolving theology. Uh, and many contradictory assertions, which I said at the outset, but it's good to write that down or at least make that clear and know that they uh, do that unabashedly, which, by the way, is one of the reasons Hinduism is so pluralistic. And, and by that, I mean true pluralism. Pluralism, if you look it up in the dictionary, will define uh, pluralism as a condition or, or a system in which two or more states, groups, principles, or sources of authority can coexist w without embattled conflict. Right? It's a form of society in which the members of a minority group can maintain their independent cultural conditions or traditions, or in this case, theological conditions and cultural assertions that they're okay with. Now, Islam doesn't think that way. Uh, and even in, within the, the, the category of Christianity, the JWs and the Mormons don't think that way. That's why they're coming to your house to convert you, because you're wrong and you need to be made right. You need to get it right because all the other creeds are wrong and they're abomination of God. Hinduism doesn't think that way, because even within its corpus of, of, of authoritative books, there's contradiction. And so it's all right. You pick this, you pick that, you pick these gods, you pick that that way, and, and that's okay. And that's why you're not having Hindus come knock at your door. That's why even if you went to a Hindu temple, they wouldn't be there trying to convert you. They would be very mellow. And some people like that. And certainly our Beatles uh, friends like that a lot. I mean, that's one of the appeal. I mean, you think Katy Perry or, or Russell Brand or, or, or whoever it is, is going to be drawn to something that says, we've got the truth. Here's the way, the truth of life. No one comes to the Father except through me. That's not going to fly uh, with people, certainly in the Hollywood elite. And we, we get uh, that, that kind of uh, uh, true pluralism within uh, Hinduism. 
in some corners, you can really almost insert this phrase for Hinduism. Now, that's an overstatement, but it'd be good to at least introduce that thought into your mind. And that is to say Eastern philosophy, you you now are starting to say, okay, I get it. Hinduism is a whole system of thinking. It's a worldview that includes different kinds of beliefs that may be contradictory and not be able to be fully resolved with one another, but it's a way of thinking. Eastern philosophy, a worldview from ancient India, from a corner of the world that has developed a lot of assertions about deity, about reality, about the existence, the origins of people, the the, the statements about where we're headed. That's the best I can do in terms of defining Hinduism in in five minutes. And I think I left you with the right impression. I can't do it the way I could do it with uh, almost every other religion we're going to look at in in this study. Now, I think this is helpful. And much like the history of the Roman Catholic Church in like five points or whatever, uh, this is an oversimplification. I understand that. And yet it may be helpful to think this way. And and these are my words and these are my summaries. So you're not going to find these in a textbook. And you may find people say, ah, that's not an exact good representation of that period. And that's fine. You may not even agree with my periods of time. But at least in me researching all the sources that I have available to me, uh, I, I think this is a helpful way for me to think through Hinduism in stages, the stages of development. And perhaps it will help you. And I'll use a couple of their words. I'm trying to limit their words as much as possible because it sounds like we're speaking in another language, which, of course, we are when we're using these phrases. So I try to avoid this as much as possible. But you can't avoid this Vedic period. This is the pre-Vedic period. The Vedas, uh, which are the Veda in Sanskrit, is the word knowledge. And the Vedas are the collection of sacred writings that are coming next. The Vedic period in 1500 to 800 BC, that period is when these writings start to come together. Now, I I went back from 1,000 because that's more of a conservative date to 1500, which they say, well, in those 500 years, we went from an oral tradition where we started to have some of this uh, written down. So we've got pre-Vedic, before the Vedas came, before the authoritative writings came, and then we had the the Vedic period, which came next, and we're going to put a word next to each one of those in a minute. Um, Upanishadic, Upanishadic, that is, again, another word I hated to drop on you, but you can't really understand the development of Hinduism or even their scriptures without those two words, uh, Upanishadic and and Vedic. Uh, Upanishadic is a word in Sanskrit that means uh, sitting at the feet, sitting at the feet. And of course, the concept is you're sitting at the feet of the master teacher who is teaching you. And as he teaches you, you're learning from him the development of an application of the truth, the Vedic, the Vedas, the, the knowledge that came from God. And this is helpful to know. The concept of the Veda, that corpus of, of writings, that's the revelation. And then you've got the um, um, Upanishadic writings. And those writings are like, if you want to take it with the Torah, or the, you know, the scriptures, the Old Testament scriptures, uh, the Torah and the, the writings, the law and the prophets, and then say, well, then you had all this other stuff that the rabbis wrote right? And we talked about the breakdown of those things. Uh, And when you look at what the rabbis were writing about it, we said, well, there was authority in that. And if you were a good Jew in the first century, you had to have some knowledge of the traditional writings of the Jews, and it carried weight because of who it came from, but it was more of a reflection and an application of of the authoritative revealed things. So I don't want to make it sound like it's not important. It is important. It is authoritative, as we'll look at in a minute, but it uh, is different than the Vedas uh, from the Vedic period. Then let's call this the classical period from 500 BC to 500 AD. 
uh, and a lot going on there, obviously, with the birth of, of Christianity, the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy, uh, but you've got the classical period, let's call it that. And then we'll call this the medieval period, because that's what we call that period, no matter what we're talking about, and we'll give that a, a, a word or two to define it. And then we have the modern period, 1500 to the present. Now, again, I've rounded these off because there were some key things that took place in the, in the 16th century AD. And if you looked up some of these things, you'd know these turning points were a little bit more specific, but I've rounded them all off. Okay, now let's give these some, some description. I'm going to try to show you the development or the evolving nature of the belief about the divine through these periods. And I'll give you one word from words of our theology study that I hope will be helpful. And if it still sounds like we're speaking in Sanskrit, I'm sorry, but here's some definitions. Uh, Animism or being animistic. If you were to look at the pre-Vedic period of Hinduism, you'd say it's animistic. And all you have to do is study a little bit of missiology about the missions of, of the church and trying to get into places where the gospel hasn't been, and you find that the most primitive forms of people around the world uh, are still animistic. I remember going to the interior of, not Irian Jaya, next to Irian Jaya, Papua New Guinea, thank you, Papua New Guinea, and flying into Papua New Guinea, and then getting on a small plane, and flying into the jungles, and you run into people there, obviously, half-dressed, some not at all, and they are animists, and animists are people that believe that there are spirits in everything. Everything inanimate is animated with spirit. There is an attribution of souls to everything. And, and, and so every natural phenomenon is blamed on some kind of spirit in the tree when it you know, blows in the wind, uh, if there's lightning, if there's a volcano, if there's you know, uh, waves on the sea. These are all attributed to invisible spirits. Supernatural phenomena are explained in that way. So supernatural power is given uh, to everything in the material world. That's what an animist is. And if you go back and try and look at these rudimentary developments of Hinduism early on, that's what you've got. So you've got what you've got in most places when people are sitting around without any light from Scripture. They know there's more to this world. And one of the things they do in making a colossal mistake is not seeing, as we were blessed to be able to see in the development of our culture, that God has set up the world to run on rules. And those rules are understandable within what God has made. And they're not all caused by uh, some kind of spirit that's encased in everything around us, animistic. And and that's a good word for you to know, and it's a good word for you even to study because you still see pockets of people around the world like that. The Vedic period, when the Vedas were then going from oral to written, and you have this corpus of, of writings now that become authoritative for the Hindus, you see that early period being polytheistic. Now, that's a word I know you know, right? Polytheistic. Theistic from theos, God, poly, many, many gods. That is a period where you started to have an entire set, a whole library of sacred writings that talked about these gods and how to appease them and how to sacrifice to them and setting up leaders and priests to try to serve them and and how to deal with the issues in our world through not just a spirit in a tree, but the God who controls the tree and then the God who controls the sea and the God that controls birth and the God who controls aging and the God that controls... And so now we have a more systematized, organized pantheon of gods in the period of the Vedic period, the Upanishadic period from 800 BC to 500 BC. There was a reaction in these writings when you tried to apply what was written in the Vedas, you started to have a uh, reaction 
that started to correct the ship in people's minds who didn't like the concept of all these sacrifices to the angry gods, and you then began to create this more unified view of, of all things. And I put the word monotheistic because I know you know that word, and I know that's a good word in comparison to polytheism, but let me give you another word that some of you may not be familiar with, uh, monism, which is a more accurate way to describe their form of monotheism, because it's really not monotheism, it's monism. Monism, here's a word, another word I know you know, and that's pantheism. Pantheism is the belief that, that God is, is everything. And in that sense, monism's a little bit more of a focused, there is a God, he's impersonal, he's, uh, he's uh, indescribable, he cannot be contained as an entity, he's not someone you could relate to, but he is all one. And so we are one, we're all a part of that, but it's not really accurate to say polytheism, and it's not really accurate to say monotheism, and that's why technical writers want to call this monism, because we're believing that God is not just in everything, but God is everything. See, God is everything. Everything that is, is God. The material world, the spirit of a plant, the spirit of an animal, uh, the spirit in me, uh, and, and, and monism began to really like the dualists and even the Gnostics of the Christian eras, start to really downplay the physical and, and more search for this, this connection with the one, this all-encompassing one. And I am kind of getting ahead of myself because it started to develop more in the classical period. There was a philosophic consolidation. Now, again, these are my words, and I try to keep this simple, but the concept of trying to sit back and put those two concepts together. How is there one God who is all, and all is God, and in that sense, we're polytheistic, but really one God that is all things, how is that God manifesting himself in polytheism, in all the different gods that we're not going to give up on from the Vedic period? And, and so they started to consolidate this into something that worked in their minds. Though there was contradictions in the big scheme of things, they certainly tried to work those together in the classical period. Then it got more existential in the medieval period. This is a long period, a thousand years I gave this. I call this a devotional decentralization. It's devotional in the sense that I want to experience something. I want to be spiritual. I want to feel something. I want to connect with this God that is. And yet it was decentralized in that everyone got to, like I said, go to the soup plantation and kind of pick and choose what they wanted and settle into what you want. And, and everyone began then to feel more empowered uh, in terms of this religion. And that's the best way I could put it, a devotional decentralization. Though we still had priests, though we still had the Brahmin, we had the head caste of the people that led, we still have a sense of, I want to for myself experience God. I guess you could compare it to the New Testament doctrine of the priesthood of the believers, which again, sounds blasphemous even for me to say, but there is a connection there. We all have a relationship with God and, and we connect with that God without any mediation. And in that devotional quest for connection with that God, you saw Hinduism change in those thousand years. Then you had a Western adaptation. The world changed from 1500 to the present. Gutenberg, printing press, so many things happening in terms of the modernization of the world. The West started to dominate in a way that could no longer insulate these Eastern cultures. And so what you had was Hinduism trying to react to that. And it began to find its way in a world, a Western world, a Western-dominated world, uh, where it found its, um, its ability to cope and even grab the attention of the rockers in, uh, in England. I think that's fair animistic to polytheistic to being monistic 
to kind of consolidating that in the best way they could philosophically to kind of decentralizing and being devotional and everyone kind of going to your corner and grabbing your experience with God to then trying to somehow package this in a way that would make sense in the options of religions in the world for even people in the West. All right, Hindu authority. Well, we've already kind of introduced this and I've already said to you, you could fill a library with their holy texts and there are hundreds of holy texts. Matter of fact, I tried to build a chart at one point in putting this together and it just was too complicated, but there are charts out there and I couldn't just cut and paste one because they didn't work. But there's a whole series of categories of these texts that address different things, different aspects of their religion, different aspects of life. And, and you could build a pretty complicated chart just based on their library of texts. I know we have law and poetry and apocalyptic literature, and we've got gospels in the New Testament and history and Acts and the epistles and Revelation. It's way, way more complicated than that. Uh, and they all come through different times and in different categories and speak to different things. Um, the divine texts, which have the Vedas, and now there's more than the Vedas, but the divine text, the Shruti it's called, the Shruti, uh, Shruti is the name in, in Sanskrit, is their ultimate authority. That body of text is the category one. These are the revelation from the other side, and that is the ultimate authoritative text, which again, doesn't have the authority that we would say in Sola Scriptura, because we're willing to argue if the text says this, then we do this, and they're not that way. They are truly pluralistic even within their own religion. Um, and there are several categories to that, and that's where I gave up to so try to build a, a chart for you, but it didn't work. Then there are the Shmirti. I know that's funny, funny to say, Shruti and Shmirti. Those are the traditional texts. These are the texts that are based on the Shruti that include the Vedas and all the other authoritative texts, a lot of the earlier texts, and they're secondary, yet they're very important. Kind of built that just from the sequence of moving from one category to the next. But there's so many other things from different time frames that fit into that tree of, of documents. Yeah. The best known texts, certainly that America have been exposed to and the West has been exposed to, come from this second group. I brought my old copy of the Bhagavad Gita, which is the one that most Americans have read and come in, in, in contact with. Now, mine doesn't have a great cover like that. I went cheap when I got mine years ago. But this, this is the book that most people were encouraged to read. And, and certainly if you are exposed or were exposed to, you know, the Krishna consciousness and wanting to know about Krishna and how to connect with God, and he's just one of the gods, as we'll look at, then this was the book uh, that, that was most popular in our, uh, in our day. Perhaps, and, and even in India today, it would probably be the most widely known Hindu scripture. And it's just a part of a whole body of text within the Shmirti uh, category of, of texts. And it's all about, if you read this, which it can be done, it's not it's difficult, it's not even as, as it's, it's more cogent than reading the Quran, actually. Quran, as I said, is all over the map. But it's intended to illustrate the difficulties and ambiguity of walking the righteous path of dharma, the path of virtue, the path of righteousness, which, as we'll get to, is going to help me in the future in my reincarnation and the gold ultimate that we'll talk about. But, matter of fact, this is the Bible to a lot of people that are introduced to uh, Hinduism, and yet it's just one volume in a big library of authoritative text. Now, when you think of Hinduism, perhaps, even in my day, I know I'm old, uh, getting older by the year, these are the faces that come to my mind of the authoritative leaders within Hinduism. 
right? I don't think of Gandhi. Gandhi was a uh, political leader of the independence of, of India against the Brits, right? And successfully so, one of the most outspoken and well-known ones. But when I think of the gurus, or I think of the, and we'll get to breaking down these words in a minute, but I think of these faces and these names, and there's a whole list of them, a lot of them. But let's break them down into three categories. There are the priests. I talk about the Brahmin caste. Now, if you don't know anything about Hinduism, you know about that, right? You know that they're breaking down society into four groups of people. At the top is the Brahmin class. The Brahmin class are, as they were in almost every culture, Western cultures as well, are the scholars, the teachers, the, the leaders, the spiritual leaders. That's how it used to be. Today, it's the academics, but it is funny. Next time you go to a graduation, what is everyone wearing at graduation? What do they wear when they graduate? A robe and the hat. You know what that is, don't you? Those are clerical robes. Those are past, that's pastoral garb from the Middle Ages. That, that's how it always, if you were the top of society, you were a pastor, you were a teacher, you were a scholar, you studied theology. And even today, you can go to the most secular college in America and all the professors on the stage handing out diplomas are all wearing clerical robes. And so it is in Hinduism. Uh, the scholars, the thinkers, the, the, the leaders of, of, the, of the culture were the priests and, and, and the teachers. So this is the priestly class, and they, they led in the temples. Uh, they were the people that worked for the temples. They got their living off the temples. They were like the Levites. They're like the scribes, and, and they were there to teach like the rabbis, and they were revered in society, and they are on the top caste of, of all. Um, and just to round that out, by the way, so that you know the rest of them, if you're not familiar with the caste system, you've got the warriors next. You've got the priestly class, the Brahmin class. You've got the, the warriors. And by warriors, again, in most ancient cultures, those were like David. David was a warrior, but he was also a king. It was the kingly administrative class. The guys in charge were the fighters. They were the Douglas MacArthur's of, of society. And those people uh, were the second class. So you had the scholars and the religious guys, the theologians, and then you had the kings and the administrators, and they were, they were fighters. They were warriors. And then you had what we would see is just, you know, you got the normal people. You got the merchants, the farmers, and ranchers. That's the third caste. Uh, so priestly class, then you got the administrative class, and then you've got just the ranchers, the farmers, the people who sold things in the marketplace, and then you had the lowest caste, and that was the laborers, the, the artisans, the others. Uh, and they were known, if you do any reading in Hinduism, you get around to this word, the untouchables, which if you have any exposure to Eastern philosophy or Eastern culture, I mean, that's the lowest class. And now in our day, of course, everyone feels bad, even in the 1940s. When India earned its independence from Britain, there was uh, a, a real push, a lot under Gandhi's leadership, because he was not of the Brahmin class, he wasn't of the priestly class, to do away with at least the discrimination against the lowest class, the untouchables, they called them, the, the laborers. Um, and, and it was even outlawed, I think, in 1948, 49. Uh, you couldn't discriminate and, and exclude in things like education and, and, and medical service or whatever it might be, the, low, the lowest class, the untouchable class. Anyway, I just say that to round, round it all out. Then there's the teachers. I'm just talking about authorities in their religion, priests, and we're not going on to the castes anymore. We've already dealt with that. I'm just telling you the priests were of that top caste. The teachers, you've heard the word Swami. I remember this as a kid, and it was big. You'd hear it in the news, and you'd see people talking about the Swami this and the Swami that, and then, of course, some you know, late-night parodies of it all. But these are the, um, the, the monks, the ascetics. The Brahmin who served as priests, like I said, were like the Levites. They got paid. They were working. They were working in the temple, they were leading, they were teaching, and they got paid. Now, the Swami was like 
wow, super spiritual. This was the guy who, here's a word, and I know I used it. Someone called me on it the other day from the pulpit, but I think I use it enough for everyone to know it. It's the word ascetic. It's in the Bible. It's in Colossians, the word ascetic. And that is that there's this willingness to do away with earthly pleasures and comforts, even a willingness to hurt myself uh, in, in, in the way of, if you think about like the Da Vinci Code and all that, you talk, saw people f- slashing themselves, whipping themselves. That concept within Hinduism was in this, in this group of uh, spiritual leaders. And they became authorities, the swamis. They were monks. They were monastic. They were uh, out on their own and, and kind of trying to find this devotion to God. And they became very powerful in terms of Hindu authority. And if they said something that God says or thinks, then people paid attention. And then here's a word I know you know, the guru. The guru is more of a, though he did it in groups, a personal connection of pulling people into the religion. He's the discipler. I just picked a word I think we would know and get used to around here, the discipler. So you had the religious class like the Levites. You had the teachers that were the real serious, profound, you know, kind of ascetics. If you think about Brother Lawrence or Thomas Merton or Richard Foster or all these people that we don't agree with their theology, but they have this kind of uh, ascetic monastic devotion. Well, that's the swamis. And then you had the gurus. These are the ones that were really well known in America because everyone had their guru. Harrison and Lenin, of course, they put their guru on the front because he's the guy that has initiated them into Hinduism. So those are the disciples. Or another word for it, the the, the master guides. I'm going to guide you, teach you, train you, teach you to meditate, teach you to yoga, teach you to do the things that will initiate you into the higher consciousness that you need to deal with the problem of karma and move on to a better reality. Now, this is not like the Catholic church in that this is magisterium. This is teaching that is coming and and it has the same weight as God. But you don't dismiss what the priests, swamis, and gurus say. The Brahmin, swamis, and guru have authority. But it's not, like I said, it's not like the authority that you would even have from a Joseph Smith or the, the, the Quorum of the Twelve in Mormonism or Judge Rutherford that we dealt with last week in, in the JWs. Uh, it doesn't have that same bite. And yet in, in Eastern culture, you look to these guys as, as almost deified in that they have a, an insight that most of us don't have. All right, Hindu gods. We better understand what we're talking about here. JWs always talk about the Trinity. And one of the things they do in that book, Should You Believe in the Trinity, is they'll put this picture up, or one of the pictures at least from Hinduism, of the three-faced god because this became as an expression of the ultimate god that is, is the expressing himself in three ways. And they say, see there, you got this Trinity thing from Hinduism, among other things. And they point to other cultic uh, sources. Well, that's not where they got it. So let's talk about it. What is this? Well, if we have a tr- and the reason I got God slash gods is because, again, it's, it's somewhat contradictory in that there is this kind of pantheistic or, or polytheistic concept as well as this monistic that God is everything. So I put God here because if you're going to talk about God, Brahmin, not Brahmin, but Brahmin. That is the name they give to the undefinable, impersonal, abstract God that has always been and is. That, that is the ultimate God, Brahmin. He's discussed as the creator of the universe. He is described as having life in himself. And again, even if I say that, there are texts that say that's not true. They say he's derived. Other texts say, no, he's not. Nevertheless, he's at the top of the pecking order, but he's not a he. He's more of an it because he's undefinable and impersonal. The expressions of this God 
are found in the manifestations. And these are words you've also known, even from reading the lyrics of, of George Harrison. There is the Brahma, not the Brahman or the Brahmin. I know it gets complicated here, but the Brahma is the first expression of God. Vishnu is the uh, second expression of this God. He's blue. He is widely worshipped as the protector of all things. He is the principle of order. He's the principle of righteousness and Shiva. If you know those three words as the expression of the ultimate Brahman, you've got the basic, as other people would say, and I don't describe it this way, but the trinity, if you will, of, of, of Hinduism, the ultimate. But that's not the focus. They are important and they are over all things, but we're dealing with gods on another level. So let's talk about that. The many mythical Hindu deities. And I say mythical because modern Hindus might even put it that way. They look at this sometimes like uh, a person might look at, at least from our perspective in Western culture, the, the, the pantheon of gods or the, the stories of, of, of the gods and goddesses that are not believed to be literal but mythical. And I got to be careful there because some Hindus believe these as literal. Nevertheless, let's talk about the more popular ones. And I put pictures up and I'm going to name a few, maybe more than you want to hear, but I'll bet you've seen some of these. Some of you, if you've been around uh, in parts of California, you may have seen all of these. My assistant said today, coming back from lunch, she saw this on the back of a truck today. And that is Ganesh. Ganesh is the elephant-headed god, Ganesh. He spelled it with a G. It is the most recognizable of the deities within Hinduism. It's, it's below the three that we looked at, the primary three. But it is a god with an elephant head. And if you look closely, every time you see G Ganesh, at the bottom, you'll see a little tiny mouse. And in this depiction, and, and I could have found, I, I, I might have found one that Ganesh was actually riding the mouse uh, because that, even though it's sitting near the mouse, the mouse is the form of transportation for Ganesh. And all of these have symbolic, I know, uh, symbolic reasons. And even why he's got an elephant head. And we could go into all the details about that, but it doesn't matter. But you will see the elephant-headed Hindu god. And if you think, oh, there's the god of, of Hinduism. Not really. It's a god of Hinduism. It's a very popular god of Hinduism. And the reason people like him is he's supposed to be the lord of success and the destroyer of obstacles. You see why people would even tattoo this as they do on their bodies. Because in their superstitious view, and even though they're not full-blown Hindus, they think, oh, here's kind of the good luck charm for being a successful person and powering through my obstacles in life. He's also seen as the god of knowledge, the god of wisdom, and the god of wealth. I've seen Ganesh depicted in many uh, situations with money all over him. So this is, this is something you will see regularly. Here's one that you should know. You heard your pastor recite the lyrics of him today. This is Krishna. Hari, which is Lord, Lord Krishna, uh, they call him. He's the boy playing the flute. And there's all kinds of different depictions of him playing his flute. Sometimes he's even depicted as a little baby. In various forms, he's depicted usually with his flute, providing all kinds of, of, of resources to, to worshipers. So much could be said about Krishna, but since he's the most well-known, let's push on to others that I know you've heard of. Here's Brahma, or Rama, rather, which is also sung about in the, the mantra of, of the Beatles, Hari Rama. Rama is the god uh, of, and here's another word I should familiarize you with. I know you know the word, avatar. What is an avatar? Well, it's the thing you get online to kind of represent you in cyber world. Avatar is the manifestation of you online. The word avatar is, comes from Hindu theology, which is an expression 
or a manifestation of one of the gods. And Rama, who is the god, you see him here with his uh, bow and his arrow. He's a very tough guy. He's going to help you. He's the god of virtue and chivalry. He's the, odd, uh, he's the idealized perfection in a, in a strong, able person, that kind of virility and that kind of strength. He's ultimately, in their theology, a avatar, they would call him, of the god Vishnu. So Vishnu, of the big three, under Brahman, the ultimate impersonal thing, the abstract god, this is the subset and, and exp- one of the expressions of, of Vishnu, Rama. And you just heard him in George Harrison's lyrics, uh, they call him Lord Rama. And if you see these websites translated or this material, sometimes they'll translate it Lord, Lord Rama, they call him. This is another one you might have seen. You go to some places in certain parts of California. I mean, I'm sure anywhere you're listening to this cross country somewhere. When you have concentrations of Hindu people, you will see the monkey faced God. Now, I picked this one with the many faces, five faces, because ultimately Hanuman has five faces. Not every depiction of Hanuman has five faces, but you'll always see him with a monkey face. And, and that's why when I thought, I'm going to give you this one in, in some visual form, is because I see this one with, you know, the monkey face. And I think, well, that's weird. That looks like Planet of the Apes. Well, that is a, a very distinct God. He's a powerful God. He works with Rama uh, in terms of fighting alongside of Rama. He's not an avatar of Vishnu, but he's an avatar of, of Shiva. So of another of the big three. He serves as a symbol of devotion, perseverance, prowess, and there are temples devoted to him. And I thought I would show you if you want to see where that happens. I, this is here in Torrance, and I can't even read that. It's so small. Shri, which is a Sanskrit word for, um, of respect, a title of respect. And then I can't read it, uh, Pachamartarha, which is five faces. That's what that means in Sanskrit. And then it's got his name. A Haruman Temple. So right off the, what is that, the 110 freeway? If you're going up the 405, drop down the 110. Don't go all the way to Palos Verdes, but there's the temple to Haruman. If you want to see the monkey-faced God, which I don't recommend, but he, he will be there in a little temple in a nondescript building in Torrance. Lakshmi. This is another one you might have seen, and it's depicted in all different ways. In one of the books I was reading on uh, Hinduism this last week, has her depicted, and you'll see her sometimes on one foot with the four arms. You've seen her, right? Always has a lotus blossom in one hand. This is the goddess of good luck. It's another one that you'll find people often uh, having in their shop. You know, if you've got a Hindu shopkeeper or, you know, somebody who's got it in their home, if you go into their home and, and they're Hindu, you'll see this. This is the god of, of good luck, the goddess of good luck. Uh, always depicted as beautiful. A lot of times you'll see her really super thin with thin arms. This one's depicted thicker, but you know, she's holding the lotus bud of life and uh, she's a symbol of fertility and of beauty. And um, yeah, you'll see her often. Sometimes on a lion, sometimes on a, on a tiger. I've seen her on a tiger too, is Durga. Mata means uh, mother, mother Durga. She's the protector of, of righteousness. She is the destroyer of evil. She's got not four arms. She's got a bunch of arms. And in this one, she's got, what, six arms, uh, always a lot of arms and always carrying a bunch of weapons. Uh, so she's the, the tough cage fighter god of Hinduism. Saraswati. Why did I put this one up? Oh, I know, because she's the goddess of, of, of learning and of wisdom and of speech. And I thought, I have seen this around. I tried to pick ones you've seen. But anyway, it's the end of my list. Let's talk about their salvation. If I want to get saved, how do I do this? And what does salvation even mean? Well, as you know, it's all about reincarnation. 
and let's talk about, let's not jump to the end of the line. Let's just think of your next life, and you need to think about gaining a better reincarnation. That's the goal right now. Got an ultimate goal we'll talk about in a minute, but right now, your goal in this life, this, this year, this month, this week, would be for you to somehow gain a better reincarnation. And the way to do that is for you to stockpile more good karma. Now, we use this in, in commercials. We use this in talk. People talk about karma. But this is a serious discussion in theology about making sure I come back in a better state than I was in this life. And to do that, I need more good karma stored up. Well, how do I get it? Three ways. One, I need to engage in religious and social duties. So I'm going to be a good citizen, and I'm going to engage in worship, and I'm going to be dutiful, and I'm going to do good works. I'm going to tell the truth. I'm going to try to be a virtuous person. I'm going to try and walk the path of dharma. I'm going to try to achieve righteousness and virtue and and kindness. Uh, I'm going to engage in good works. It's going to include religion, and it's going to include just being a good person, a good citizen. Then I'm going to work on my consciousness, my mind. I'm going to increase my knowledge. And, the, and, the, and I put it this way because it's the primary thing in becoming conscious, and that is to see myself as an illusion, to start to diminish my individuality. I mean, it's certainly not an American concept, but I am not going to be about autonomy. I'm not going to be about me. Me and self is not even real. I want to stop being self. I want to start to blend into the rest. I need to raise this knowledge, which comes through meditation, comes through yoga. I want to get to the place where I can relax and release and stop being so self. Uh, and it, I put down experiential because it's not just gaining knowledge. It's not like going to Bible study and, and learning more of the Vedas. This is about uh, experiencing something on an existential level that gets me thinking less like a person, uh, less like at least the person of an individual human person in a human body. I need to escape the physical. I need to move beyond that. And then I want to love a deity, more than one, but at least one. And I want to be devoted to that deity. And I want to live my life in light of that deity. And I want to make sure that I'm reflecting that in my relationships, in my home, in my family. So here's the part that, again, is going to work at expressions and and living out the virtue that I'm learning about as I give myself in devotion and veneration of of one of the many deities in um, Hinduism. Now, there are names for these, but this is the essence of it engage in religious and social duties, start to experience through my meditation and the mantras to see myself as more of an illusion uh, and and, and not real. I'm looking to release myself from that, as we'll see in a minute why. And then I'm going to love the deity. I'm going to serve the deity. I'm going to give fruit sacrifices to the deity. I'm going to do things that please the deity. And then I'm going to live in light of what the deity wants to do uh, through my world and in uh, in the world through my life. My ultimate goal, though, and I'm not going to be some overachiever and think I'm going to get it right away, but eventually... I want to keep coming back with good karma piled up so I can reincarnate into better levels of existence so that ultimately I can stop being reincarnated. That's the goal. I want to be absorbed into God. God is the ultimate reality, and I want to get to the place where I'm so absorbed into that reality, as they like to say, I've become a drop in the ocean, and I'm gone. See, the self is now completely gone. Now, I'm trying to get there in my meditation. I'm trying to clear my mind. I'm trying to stop being so individual, so self, so physical, so trapped, so contained. I want to free myself. And ultimately, the more I do that in my life, eventually I'll stop being reincarnated and I will absorb myself into the ultimate reality, God. And since I'm monistic and I believe that all is God, I want to treat everything as sacred, the earth. I want to save the planet. I want to see animals as sacred. I am going to be as thoughtful about the life of a mosquito as I am the life of of the most 
righteous Swami I know. I want to see all as sacred because all is God, all is one. And that's why, and, and there are historical reasons for this we could talk about, but the cow becomes this sacred manifestation that typifies the veneration of all things. I see God's sacredness in everything, and the cow is the perfect example of that. The gentle cow, as as the Hindus like to say, gives more to me than I could ever give to it just in a representation of the sacred nature of things. And and, and though they'll say, well, we don't really worship the cow, they, they, they clearly venerate the cow as an example and a manifestation of, of the ultimate, of God in all things, of their monism. And I had a bunch of pictures I, I started flipping through of, of the cow. And of course, if you, if you just do any typing on uh, Hindu cultures and Hindu places, certainly in India, you'll see these cows, free reign, sacred, venerated, all of that. And it's gotten ridiculous in our day. And I hate to put this picture up, but here's an example of drinking, they, they, rinsing in the urine of the cow, uh, I've had more pictures that were too disgusting to show, although that's pretty disgusting, of, of drinking the urine of cows. Now, again, you think that's gross. I do too. But um, think about it. You know, if the cow is the ultimate sacred example of all that is, 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 is God, right? I mean, he is, is, is this great depiction, one that has been elevated in their culture and their theology to be the expression of all the... Then, I don't know, anything that, that the cow can give me is, is, is good. It's God. They, they drink the urine, at least a growing segment in India, to uh, say the, 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 the healing effects of it. And, the, you know, I've read websites about keeps me from getting cancer. And, yeah, you can see that, can't you? I thought I'd have more people moan at that. And, you know, the passage I turned to when I threw that on the PowerPoint and I stuck it on my screen is Romans one twenty one. Although they knew God, clearly all of this is about deity, right? They know God. They didn't honor Him as God. They didn't give thanks to Him but they became futile in their thinking. Is that a picture of futility? And their foolish hearts were darkened and claiming to be wise. This is ultimate. You eat a cow. I'm ready to have one after the Bible study tonight. I didn't want to have a burger. I wish fat burger were still at the town center. Um, but here they're willing to bathe in the urine of the cow. They're willing to drink that. Claiming to be wise, they think we're idiots. They've become fools. And they've exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things and elephant-headed beasts riding, you know, mice. Therefore, God gave them over in the lust of their hearts to all their impurity. And there's a lot of, there's a sexual element to it. Kama Sutra, if you read some of the anthropologists and even Christian missionaries that went to India, the, the things they've done in sex orgies in their name of their religion. Uh, it's well chronicled and, and well uh, documented. And, and even so, you can see it in some of even their, their reliefs and their statues, which they all put under the rubric or the heading of the Kama Sutra and, and all their expressions of, of swapping wives and all the things that they've, they've done. And I've read about them and, and can show you that material. But the point is he gave them over in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. Because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and they worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. I mean, you look at a picture like that and if you don't see that in the, in the base expression of a godless theology, uh, I, don't, I don't know what else would show you um, an, an expression of that passage in Romans 1, 21 through 25. Hindu practices, lots of ceremonies, fertility ceremonies, 
I didn't list them because I thought I'd be at the end of the hour, and I am, so I'm glad I didn't list them. But fertility, pregnancy, birth, marriage, a lot of numerology in, in Hinduism. They're trying to figure out what the best dates are to even conceive or the best dates are to do this or that. A lot of superstition and a lot of uh, crazy ceremonies, L- lots of festivals, maybe some you might be familiar with. Holly in the springtime, it's a popular spring festival. Took place this year on March 24th, celebration of slaying uh, of a demoness and... Um, the conquest of, of winter, the coming of spring happens around Easter time. Navaratri the, in the fall, which we just had. We didn't have it, but they had it down in Laguna Beach and in Chino Hills on October the 1st. Festival to the worship of, of uh, Durga, Matra Durga, the mother god. It's a nine-night festival. Diwali, I mean, that's probably the most popular one. And people think about that one because it happens during uh, Christmas time or near Christmas, at least in the fall. Uh, and I think Diwali's coming up pretty soon. On that website, I saw it. Uh, yeah, the 30th, 30th, the end of this month. Well, not quite Christmas time, but uh, they call it the Festival of Lights. Again, it signifies the victory of good over evil, another slaying of the of the evil and the God stories, and they're all about that. It happens several nights long, lamps, candles, dancing. There's a bunch of them, but there's three of them. Cremation, talked about that. And a yesti is the Sanskrit word for uh, final sacrifice or the last sacrifice that we make. And then yoga, which I've thrown out there a few times, which may be disturbing to people, thinking, yoga, that's good for you. All I'm saying is if you go to the yoga websites, you know, Yoga Magazine, Yoga Journal online, which I think this is just yogajournal.com or .org, and you just start clicking through and reading articles, this is about consulting with yogis and uh, swamis and, and, and Brahmin to try and figure out how to do what yoga was designed to do, which is prepare my body and my mind to continue to store up good karma and, and receive the, uh, uh, the blessings of transcendental meditation and all that goes with it. I mean, and he, again, I, this is the first site I came to that seemed like a bona fide site just about yoga, and it is about yoga, but you'll see a ton of uh, articles in this website, for instance, and several others like it. It's not just a guide to stretching out or being healthy. It's a guide to medic- meditation. Lots of articles about what this does for you, how it opens up your mind. And I just, I threw down in my notes here, looked up yoga in the dictionary. Yoga, noun, a Hindu spiritual and ascetic discipline, part of which including breath control, simple meditation, the, ado- uh, the adoption of specific body postures, widely practiced for health and relaxation, but known in the West for this. But, you know, it's a Hindu system of religious and ascetic observance and meditation, the highest form of which the Raja Yoga and the ultimate aim, which is spiritual purification, self-understanding, uh, leading to union with the divine. I mean, that's how the dictionary defines this. And our good friend uh, Al Moeller got in a lot of trouble when he posted this article. And I think it was the New York Times or one of the magazines picked it up and posted it in their newspaper. And he got barraged with uh, hate mail on this. It'd be fun for you, not fun, I don't know, painful maybe, empathetically painful to read. If you go to almoeller.com and just search yoga, you'll see his article, and then you'll see some follow-ups he had to do just to deal with the hate mail that he got when he basically questioned uh, yoga. As this opening paragraph says, when Christians practice yoga, they must either deny the reality of what yoga represents or fail to see the contradictions between their Christian commitments and their embrace of yoga. The contradictions are not few, and they're not peripheral. A lot of what he got was from this book, uh, which I've got and you might want uh, to look at if you have any questions about this. The story of yoga in America, the subtle body, which it kind of explores those connections. Now, I know some people don't go in with that mindset, and a lot of you may say, well, my yoga class doesn't have any of that. Well, if it doesn't, then as Al Mohler says, then it's, it's really not yoga. It's something else. Uh, might as well change the name of the class then. 
I don't mean to get in the trouble that Al got in. I'll let Al fight that, that battle. I have no interest in that. Hey, truth for Hindus in two minutes. Lots of people getting saved in India by God's grace. One of our missionaries was over there in New Delhi for a while, and it's great to see some young Hindu Christians. But what they need to know is that there is a personal, sovereign God. There's no pantheon of gods. Sure, there are cosmic forces. I understand that. There are angels and demons. But there is one God, one sovereign God, a triune God. Sin, which they don't talk about much in their theology other than getting karma in response. You need to see it as a personal transgression against a God who takes it personally. Yeah, I think about the sin in the middle monarchy when God says to Samuel, they haven't rejected you by their sin, they've rejected me. No place in Hindu theology for that, but Hindus are designed by God, made in the image of God. That's what we've got to hit on, and it will at some point connect with their heart as it's being prepared. Of course, there is no hell, there is no heaven for Hindus, but we need to express the problem that's biblically revealed by God of eternal retribution and separation. Depart from me, I never knew you. Into outer darkness, weeping, wailing, gnashing of teeth. You receive what was due them, the penalty of their sins. They're storing up, I'm just quoting all these passages, Romans 2 now, 4. Storing up for themselves wrath for the day of God's wrath. We need to talk about the problem of eternal retribution and separation. How about Hebrews 9? I know you think this life, it's just you're giving, a, giving it a crack and hopefully you'll get better on the next one. It's appointed unto man once to die and after that comes the judgment. You get one, one go at this. We have a need for atonement. That's the conviction of the Spirit to lead us to know we've got to have a covering for our sin. See, in Hindu theology, I'm going to pay for my own sins. If I've done enough bad things, well, then I'll pay for it in the next life. And then the love of a substitute. To really think about God loving the world so much that He would send His Son to die for people that did nothing for Him but cause Him pain. Amazing. And security of grace. Think about karma, just the concept of that. It's about my life this week, this month, this year, for the rest of my life, and all of those things I'm going to pay for, or I have to somehow, like the Catholics would say, make restitution somehow through my own penance. Grace is not like that. There's a wonderful, ripe harvest field of Hindus that are ready to hear about the gospel of grace because it is so much better than karma. And then if you think about it, the reality of suffering in a fallen world. If you believe in karma, think about that. The cornerstone of Hindu theology then that means when you see someone suffering, you're knowing you earned it. Maybe not in this life, but you earned it in your life. And now think about walking through the world with that worldview. I mean, for Paul to say, listen, no, we suffer in a fallen world. You can't always draw a connection like Job from some sin you've done to some bad thing in your life. That's not true. I mean, we're going to suffer in a fallen world. And sometimes it has nothing to do with what we've done. How freeing is that for Hindus that have been taught all their life that every time you have a bad thing happen, you earned it, right? All I'm saying is there's no correspondence there, and Job was written for that very purpose.